Our Bible reading this morning is Psalm 27. It's on page 550 of the Pew Bibles under your seats. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in the straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. Here ends our reading. Thank you, Bruce and Penny, and uh, good morning, everyone. All right, cool. It's good to be together. Uh, if you could keep Psalm 27 open, that would be uh, super helpful to me. We have already prayed, so we'll get uh, right underway. And I wonder if you can remember a TV commercial. It was quite a while ago where uh, a very young Kate Blanchett, I think it was her um, real break into acting, was uh, on the living room couch, and she polished a, a bottle and out popped a genie that uh, gave her the option of three wishes. What would Kate Blanchett, a young Kate Blanchett, do with three wishes? And she thought about it for a little while and then she came up with it. It's obvious, a packet of Tim Tams that never ran out. Do you remember that commercial? Um, and then her kind of bumbling boyfriend in the background then goes, has a great idea and goes, oh yeah, we'll have another couple of those. Thanks very much. I didn't think it was very funny either. Um, and I wonder if you've ever played that game or, or just threw that question around in your own mind, three wishes. If a genie popped out of a bottle and gave you three wishes, what would you choose? Would you be satisfied with a packet of Tim Tams that never ran out? <laughs> would you really think you needed three of them? Uh, or would you use your remaining two wishes quite a bit more judiciously? When I was in primary school, I remember we'd throw around that question a little bit and uh, our first two wishes were usually pretty fickle, um, but we carefully ensured that our third and final wish was for unlimited future wishes. Did you ever do that? 
It's technically allowable, I suppose, but not really within the spirit of that question, is it? Actually, it takes a fair bit of care and attention to get it down to just three wishes, doesn't it? If you've only got three things to hope for, you're not going to fritter them away on fickle things, are you? be very careful. The great um, Greek philosopher Socrates, <laughs> I think he's ordering a Big Mac now, I'd like one Big Mac, uh, he said this, the secret of happiness is uh, not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to seek less. So if you've only got three wishes, you're likely to choose something to do with healthy relationships uh, or fulfilling work or a well-functioning body or a secure home and a community, things like that, I would suppose, not fickle things, but what if you only had a single wish? You had to narrow it down to one lone desire. What would you wish for then? Well, that's what we're thinking about today as we tackle the topic of the liberation of desire, of all the diverse and disparate things that we would like for our lives, some of which are legitimate, some of which are just pretty flighty, What might it look like to disentangle all that desire or to focus on one single thing that catches up or surpasses all of our other desires? And how can we have the same single desire that God would want us to have? As we uh, turn the corner in our Deeper Places series, we have seen that life with God is far from simplistic. His blessing is available But it doesn't mean that's easy for us as his people. The joy of forgiveness and restoration is at hand, but only for those who counterintuitively uh, uncover our brokenness before God and confess our sin before him. There are praises to sing, but often they come only after lament, uh, only after we give voice to our pain and our complaint and our grief, and we know that can last for quite some time. Today, we can be liberated from all the desires that compete for our heart's affection and our mind's attention, but that's going to require some spirit-inspired focus, and that doesn't sound very simple to me. So today, I'd like to examine this idea of liberating our desire from Psalm 27, which is why it's important to have it open in front of you, and I I want to see the backdrop in verses 1 to 3, the focus required in verses 4 to 6 before finishing with some practicalities in verses 7 to 14. So I hope that sounds okay. Backdrop, focus, practicalities. And so we start with the backdrop in verses 1 to 3. And it's, to be honest with you, it's a little bit of what we've already seen during the Deeper Places series. There are delightful thoughts of light and salvation and strongholds and confidence. But then you quickly realise that's because there are the competing threats of advancing enemies and besieging armies, and the outbreak of war. I mean, David hasn't got some dreamlike existence, not a packet of Tim Tams that never runs out kind of world. It's a real world kind of backdrop. And the scenery might be a little bit different to ours. After all, we're not kings. There aren't literal armies advancing towards us. But you'd have to admit the colours are pretty much the same, aren't they? Our most prominent social researcher is a fellow by the name of Hugh Mackay. And he sort of traces the colours, really the contours of Australian life. And he has shown that there's a similarly murky backdrop to life in our land. 
And Mackay picks up on just a couple of features of modern life that have been designed really to help us with our desires, but have actually harmed us. Uh, The first, he says, is the information technology revolution, which holds out this great promise of connecting us, but which actually makes it easier than ever to stay apart. And that has driven our personal misery. And the second feature he picks up on is what he calls the me culture, which has developed over the past 20 years at the behest of mass marketing, which has pushed not just the idea that humans are entitled to be happy. You see, we probably think that we're entitled to be happy and pursuing individual happiness is the right strategy of living, even if everyone else is miserable. But it's actually picked up that materialism and consumption is the way to get that personal and individual happiness. He says that's the air that we breathe here. And, you know, I thought he was really overstating that case. Um, but on the very same day I read that about from Mackay, I received a letter from my favourite shirt shop. And it was titled, How to Achieve Happiness. And it promised that they would not rest until their beautifully soft cotton shirts had me positively whirring with joy. <laughs> How is that even possible? <laughs> Friends, uh, what, what we've discovered is there's complex forces at work here, aren't there? We're told that personal happiness is ultimate. We're persuaded that technology and spending and consumption will bring it. And our desires are all kind of mixed up in that mess somewhere. And yet we know that something's missing, right? We're more connected, but somehow more apart, more alone. We've got more stuff, and yet we're somehow the poorer for it. And even if we're happy, our next door neighbour, whom we probably don't even know, is miserable. Now what are we going to do about all that mess? There are some promising clues for us in verses 1 to 3, which I think hint at where David is going next. In the face of advancing enemies and besieging armies the outbreak of war, we might expect him to say, my own army will be my salvation. My own wisdom is my light. My confidence is in my own soldiers whom I've trained up. Uh, That will ensure that my heart does not fear. In just the same way that we could expect ourselves to trust in our own significant relationships. Isn't that what we trust in? Uh, Our spouses, our children, our parents, our closest friends. Or maybe we lean upon our own ingenuity and hard work. Or maybe we really deep down think that our money will actually purchase a solution to whatever problem we have. But David says, no. It is actually the Lord who protects him from fear and anxiety. But my goodness, that requires a degree of focus, doesn't it? And you see that focus in verses 4 to 6 where David doesn't narrow down all the competing desires, all the things that claim his attention and affection. He doesn't narrow them down to just three. Narrows them down to just one. Read along with me in verse 4. There's just one thing he wants. Verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him, in his temple. 
You see, when he narrows the focus of his desires, when he gets to the one thing a king might request from God, it's nothing other than God himself. And friends, I wonder whether we need to adopt that precise focus if we're going to sort through the tangled web of desires that we have. It seems to me that to be a human being is to be someone with desires. We have longings, we have yearnings, there's things we really want, not just for kind of momentary entertainment. I'm talking about for deep peace and wholeness. But many individuals, many religions and philosophies over the centuries have tried to deal with those longings and those desires by kind of pushing them down, suppressing them. You know, from the earliest centuries, you had people heading out to the desert. I don't know why I'm pointing out there because that's the ocean, isn't it? It's somewhere near where Mark Collins is out there, okay? Heading out to the desert to live an extremely harsh existence, partly in an attempt to kind of push down and suppress all human desires so that they can please God. Did you know that at the centre of Buddhist philosophy there's a thing called the Four Noble Truths? And uh, they state the source of suffering in life is craving. Okay, craving is another word for desires. Therefore, the aim of at least the main branches of Buddhism is the giving up or the suppression of cravings, of desires. The giving up, the suppression of desires is the path to attaining nirvana, which is an end to the endless cycle of rebirth and suffering. Now, I think I understand how that works intellectually, and it's quite a neat philosophical system, but I don't get how that works at ground level. How you can, as a human being, possibly give up all desires. And so our scriptures, or even Psalm 27, show us the way to liberate our desires is not to try to end them all, or escape them all, or suppress them all, but to actually fix them upon something or someone that can take their weight without crumbling, that can handle all of our expectations without disappointing us. Now, what do you think that could be? Is it technology? Is it materialism and spending? Uh, Hugh Mackay doesn't think so, and, and I reckon we agree with him. He thinks what we need to do is we need to re-engage with our communities because biologically we're herd animals. Do you often think of yourself as a herd animal? <laughs> Maybe not. We're herd animals. We're hardwired to be social creatures. And you can't deny that we're social creatures, but... Even fixing the weight of our desires upon our community, I think, puts a pressure on others that they cannot quite hold up. I just think he's too optimistic. He's too trusting of people, too optimistic of our ability uh, to care for one another. And actually, I think it was King David 3,000 years earlier who really landed on the answer when he focused his desires from amongst all the possible things that might have clamoured for the affection and the attention of a king to just one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I mean, imagine yourself as King David and his walking along the walls of Jerusalem and he stops in the watchtower and he sees his enemy advancing towards him. But then he gazes down into the temple below or probably just the tabernacle at this stage and he just wistfully thinks, man, that's where I want to be. 
I want to be there. I want to be like the priests. They get to meditate upon the Lord. They get to seek his face all the time. I've been on the move. I've, I've been on the go. I've been like uh, one of them little sparrows. I've been flitting about from place to place. Really from thing to thing all the time. But now I want to settle down. And I want to settle in with God. And I'm envious of those old Israelite priests. They experience an ongoing sense of God's presence. I too want to constantly enjoy the presence of God. That's the one thing I really want. Now let me tell you, as a religious professional, if I can put it that way, we don't spend all day nostalgically gazing upon stained glass windows or even reading the Bible trying to conjure up you know, an ongoing spiritual satisfaction in the presence of God. There's much to be done. Lots of it's routine, some of it's mundane, most of it's diverting. And so this passage is not suggesting that uh, all of us should change our careers and our vocations or come out of retirement and become full-time paid Christian ministers any more than the king could swap roles and become a priest at the very time as his enemies approach. But this passage is saying one thing to us very, very, very clearly. If there is a single thing that will calm our restless hearts, if there's a single thing that will settle our wandering affections, if there's one place or there's one person who is worthy of our deepest desires, it's not the best spouse, it's not the most attentive parents, it's not the most thoughtful children, it's not the greatest friend, it's not the most harmonious community. It is only God who we meet in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hugh Mackay, back to him, I think he's at least half right when he says, you don't find yourself by looking at your screens or looking in your mirror. You find yourself by looking into the faces of those who love you or the faces that put up with you or the faces of the people you work with, or the faces of the people who need you in particular. Friends, that's only going to take you so far, don't you reckon? The real truth is we need to look into the face of God who has known us and loved us from all eternity. We need to gaze upon the beauty of his all-round perfection and seek his will for our lives and to be satisfied in him. We yearn for many things, don't we? To love, to be loved, to gain respect, to give affection, among many other things. We gaze upon the beauty of many things, whether it's a beautiful person, maybe, maybe it's a beautiful scene, a beautiful wave, maybe it's a beautiful home or a beautiful car, whatever it is. And we can enjoy those things for what they are. And those longings might be more than legitimate, but only a deep and personal knowledge in the person of God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, can ultimately satisfy our greatest desires. 
And only that actually liberates our desires. Because when we delight in God, we've got a greater capacity to, to take delight in the pleasures of life in a right and fitting way that doesn't kind of dominate us unhealthily. You know God created all things for our pleasure, just not to be the ultimate fulfillment of our deepest desires. And so David's focus in verses 4 to 6 is surely right, where he says, One thing I ask, this only do I seek, a deep and abiding relationship with God. And so, friends, thirdly and lastly, we need to work out how we're going to do that at ground level. How might we liberate our many diverse desires by focusing them on God in this real world? Because none of us, not not an old king of Israel, um, not a minister of St. Matthew's Manly, not a member of St. Matthew's Manly, none of us can, can just sit in church perpetually contemplating the goodness and beauty and wisdom and all-sufficient wonder of God. And fortunately, this psalm gives us some help with the practicalities. And so to start with, uh, you'll, you'll have heard there's an acknowledgement that really too often we look to everything and everyone else for love, respect, meaning, purpose, enjoyment, satisfaction, even salvation in life, don't we? Instead of the one thing, seeking God and his majesty, we look everywhere else but God. And so humble confession is built into this psalm, and it's really a starting point to having the sort of relationship with God that's fully satisfying. You see it there in verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. Now, we don't need to say heaps about confession because it was the application of Bruce's talk two weeks ago, but I wonder whether part of our confession ought to be, sorry, Lord, for the way we have chased after so many things with illegitimate desires and even how we've turned our legitimate desires for relationship and fulfillment into ultimate cravings, into our one thing that simply cannot bear the weight of our expectation. Forgive us, Lord, for chasing after too many things. And for making good things our God thing, when only you can ultimately satisfy us. So humble confession will be a start point. Secondly, I think rearrangement might be in order. Uh, I'll let you in on a secret, how I unwind from Sunday nights. Uh, I'm normally tired by the end of the night and uh, I have a guilty pleasure of watching renovation shows that come out of the deep south of the United States. It's classic because all the people involved are called Duke and Chip and Randy and silly names like that. And uh, (laughs) we're watching one where they bought a house for $5,000. I mean, it wasn't a palace and it needed some work, but I was thinking, five grand, man, what would that buy you on the northern beaches? It would buy you a shelf (laughs) in the toilet, wouldn't it? Um, But then I worked out that all these shows are exactly the same. They really are, and so it's a bit spoilt for me. They buy a real dump of a place, and then what they do is they rearrange it. They always do that. Uh, Usually they just knock down walls to create an open-plan living space, and they put in a big kitchen island, so everything ends up looking like that all the time. (laughs) Every episode, knock out a wall, open it up, big kitchen island. Now, I can't criticise them for that because (laughs) the rearrangement makes all the difference. 
If you're a student of chemistry or interested in that, you will know that even small rearrangements of a molecule's structure can produce a compound that acts quite differently. I wonder, friends, in our lives, whether small rearrangements can make big differences. Because you can see that here in Psalm 27. You can see the rearrangement. You can see it in verse 8, where he makes a firm resolve to see the face of God. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And you know, God actually doesn't have a face. So it's really talking about seeking the will of God that he might obey it. It's much the same as Jesus' exhortation to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. He makes a firm resolve. The cross before me, world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. You see it also in verse 11, there's rearrangement, there's realignment. As he says to God, teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Again, he's not talking about an easy life, but he's expressing a willingness to change, to rearrange his life, to realign his decisions and the course of his life under God's will. It's talking about knowing the word of God in Scripture and by his spirit putting it into practice. It's talking about walking with God in close relationship with him through the difficulties of life. Have a look at this in verse 10. Even if your mother and father forsake you, even if you have enemies that are advancing towards you. And so our lives might require rearrangement. They might require realignment, certainly a realignment of our attitudes. But I wonder for us if it means at least partly a rearrangement of our schedules, what we do with our time. Because it really doesn't seem to me that we're going to be able to rush our satisfaction in God. If we're going to liberate our desires from all the things that clamour for our attention, I don't think we're just going to be able to jam him in the little gaps, which is all we've got left. So friends, ask yourself, is there a schedule? Is there a persistent habit? Is there a routine? Is there a relationship? Is there a behaviour that requires rearrangement or realignment if our hearts are going to finally settle upon the wonder of God in the person of Christ? Do we need to space out our binge-watching of TV series so that we can pray, just as one example? Do we need to say no to some activities or to some invitations so we can be like the swallow that, that used to flit around from place to place and thing to thing, but which now settles just for a bit? I reckon you've got a good idea of what it might be. A schedule, a habit, a routine, a relationship, a behaviour. In which case, I really do encourage you to take the action required to realign and to pray through that today. The last thing which this psalm suggests is useful in liberating our desires by really fixing them on the only one who can bear their weight is to do just that. Wait. Wait. Patient waiting and remaining hopeful. Uh, You see this in the last two verses. Read along with me, verses 13 and 14. David says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. 
be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. It says it twice in the last verse. Charles Spurgeon, he was a, uh, a great commentator on the Psalms and a thoroughly dapper chap, don't you think? He said of Psalm 27, David's confidence is the child of his experience. His confidence is the child of his experience. And then he really applies that to us with these words. And you can imagine him saying them. Reader, reader, have you been delivered out of great peril? Then set up your ensign, raise your flag, mark your territory, set up your ensign, wait at your watchfire and let the enemy do his worst. Might sound uh, a little bit like a chest beating, a bit triumphant when our enemies might be fear uh, and depression and illness and the evil one, but it's a good reminder to be patient, isn't it? We're uh, unlearning lessons that we've spent our whole lives learning, picking up from our culture and even from our own inclinations to seek more and more. It's going to take some time to develop the capacity to enjoy less, as old Socrates said, even if that less is nothing short of the wonder and majesty and splendour of God himself. So humble confession and uh, careful rearrangement and then patient waiting. Well, as we finish, uh, I reckon you're with me that a packet of Tim Tams that never runs out or even three packets look pretty lame compared to being satisfied in God. But to overcome destructive desires or even those good desires that have dominated us, the answer is not going to be just to push them down. It's not going to be to go into the desert or to just suppress them, but to really fix them upon a greater desire, to know God, to be delighted in his wonder, to rest in his warmth and in his great love for us that will take spirit-fueled confession and rearrangement and patience. But it is the one thing that can provide what our hearts are searching for. It is the one thing that will finally liberate our desires. Amen and amen. I'm going to hand over to Bruce now who's going to help us celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is surely a helpful way in realigning our desires. Thanks, Bruce.